Thank you, Chad. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans as we're making our way through this letter that Paul has written to the church in Rome. We're going to be in chapter 11 this morning. Now, over the years, the Michigan Lawsuit Watch, Abuse Watch, um, has, has sponsored an annual contest. Um, this contest is, is about the most absurd warning labels that you might find on products. All right? Among some of the top winners in years past have been this. Do not use this snowblower on the roof. <laughs> to me, that's a no-brainer, but apparently somebody probably has tried that, right? Usually they make rules because someone's done something. Here, here's another one. Do not allow children to play in the dishwasher. Or a, a clothes iron had this advice, warning, <laughs> never iron clothes while they are being worn. All right, all right. Or on a Superman costume, <laughs> warning, cape does not enable user to fly. <laughs> so that's, that's a good one there, right? How about this? On a bottle of hair coloring, do not use as an ice cream topping. <laughs> you, you know, somebody, uh, she sent her husband to go and he got it, right? I'm sure that's what happened. But anyway, don't use it as hair coloring or, or, or as ice cream topping. How about on a cardboard sunshield for a car? Do not drive with sunshield in place. <laughs> on a toner cartridge, do not eat the toner. All right, sprinkle some chocolate there, right? On, on a portable stroller, caution. Remove infant before folding for storage. <laughs> I, yeah, I'd like to be on this committee up there in Michigan that goes through all these things. And finally, one that's a real eye-opener is this. In a microwave oven manual, it says, do not use for drying pets. <laughs> Sometimes we just don't pay attention to common sense or even the rules or what we're told to do and not to do. Well, as we arrive in this middle section here of Romans chapter 11, Paul, he he's, he's uses Israel as an example or, in essence, as a warning label of what not to do uh, for salvation purposes. The, the label might read something like this, don't take your faith for granted, or possibly don't think that you're God's gift to God. All right? But that's what they thought. They, they had become so arrogant that they believed that, that they were right and that there was no more room for anything, including a Messiah that doesn't fit their mold. So they willfully rejected Jesus and, in essence, God's plan for salvation. And, and so he opens the door to Gentiles that they don't see that there's even a door there. They were blinded by their own misconceptions, and they couldn't see the truth of His purpose. So because of their rejection of Jesus and of God ultimately in His plan for Him becoming their Messiah, their hearts would then become hardened 
And the Gentiles would have an opportunity to believe in Jesus as their Savior as well. So, as we begin digging into this section of Romans 11, beginning at verse 7, and we're going to go through verse 16 today, first off I want us to look at this, this development of a hard heart. All right, so Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 7 through 10. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, and eyes it would not see, and ears it would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. <clears throat> so, Paul has been using this word Israel in different directions. So, who is it that he's speaking about? Who are these Israelites, these, these Jews whose hearts have been hardened? Well, Romans 9.18, God uses that terminology of Israelite speaking as the whole nation of Israel. But then when you go to Romans 9, verses 19-33, he identifies two groups within this Israel. The first group he calls the lost uh, individual Jews of Israel. Matter of fact, he refers to them in Romans 9, verse 22, as vessels of wrath. And, and, and it, later on in verse 31, he just simply calls them Israel. But then there's another group. This group is called the saved individuals of Israel. And in verse 23 of chapter 9, he refers to them no longer as vessels of wrath, but as vessels of mercy and he says that they're the remnant that he has preserved for himself. Now, in chapter 10, Paul, he discusses this, this non-remnant, this, this group that don't want to put their faith in Jesus, these unbelieving Israel, and his conclusion is they're lost. However, as we looked at last week, in Romans 11, verses 1 through 6, Paul says that his people, as a nation, they're not really rejected by God. Rather, they are the ones who have rejected God in Christ Jesus. And he's still distinguishing between this remnant of those who are believing and the others who are unbelieving. He's, he's got two different groups within this Israel. So how is Paul using the term then, Israel, in our section today, as we're looking at Romans chapter 11, specifically right here in, in 7 through 10? Well, I believe that, that he's not talking about the nation of Israel as a whole, that he's specifically talking about those individuals as as. as as people that belong to one or the other, either those who are unbelieving or those who are believing in Christ. One is the believing remnant, which is equal to what we might label, quote, true Israel, those who were, he says, chosen or elect there in verse 7. And the other one is the rest of them who are physical descendants of Jacob and, and Abraham and Isaac, and yet they have rejected Christ and they're not willing to obey 
His commands. And so Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So not everyone in the nation of Israel has obeyed the gospel message. They don't accept Jesus as the Son of God and as their Messiah. And we understand that even today, that there are a lot of Israelites, a lot of Jewish people today, who still refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. They recognize Him as a great prophet, as a great teacher, as a great rabbi, but they are not willing to go one step further and say, He's Messiah. Right? So we've got these two different groups. So Paul's main concern here is with this latter group, this group that refuses to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. And his point is this. What about these non-remnant, unbelieving Jews today? Yes, they are lost. But even in their lost condition, God has not given up on them totally. All right? Are they completely ignoring what God has desired? Not necessarily so. All right? Yet God has done something different with them, all right? He's performed a deliberate act of hardening their hearts. They didn't harden their hearts. They rejected Him, and because they've rejected them, now Paul says, because they have rejected Jesus, God is hardening their hearts for a purpose. You can go back and you can see how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The first five plagues that were a punishment on Egypt, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by himself. All right? And God had a purpose that eventually he would bring his people out. But the last five of those, those plagues, God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he really knew what Pharaoh wanted. He didn't want to let them go. And so God hardened their hearts until finally God was done with the plagues and they left in the wilderness. And then what happens? Pharaoh's true self comes, and he goes after him. Same thing happening here with the Jews. Truly, what's happening right now is they're rejecting God, and as, as because of that, he's hardening their heart for a purpose that we'll uncover here in just a bit. All right? So what is the hardening? Well, let's first off look at what the hardening is not, okay? What it's not. It is not the reason for any of them lacking their faith in Jesus. This comes after their refusing to acknowledge Him. These individuals who have been hardened were already rejecting Jesus before God chooses to harden their hearts. And also, this hardening is not final. It's not completely done. All right? God is still willing to allow them to repent and to put their faith in Christ and be saved. So he mentions some Old Testament passages of Scripture here in our little dialogue, and it applies uh, to this present hardening that goes on. And, and, and now the text, when they were written, they were not written as prophecy about this day. However, Paul is using them as a prophetic statement. But rather, they were describing what was going on in the present day in which they were spoken. So he, he uses passages of Scripture that come from Moses' day and David's day and Isaiah's day and, and referring to how God was hardening their hearts back then. All right, But here Paul says that God's doing it again. 
perhaps it was just during this apostolic period when, when the church is beginning to form, or maybe the hardening of the hearts is continuing today. Romans 11.8 references Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, where Isaiah says, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. All right, so that's Isaiah. And verse 8 also quotes Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, when it says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. They have, in essence, become dead to the spiritual things of God. He's not allowing them now, because of their rejection of Him, to see truth. And so Paul will even tell the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You, you couldn't see God because you were dead. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, Even when you were dead in our trespass, we're made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So Moses' words in Deuteronomy, he made that statement, But to this day, all right, they have been hardened. They, ha they have been put to sleep. They can't see. Even up to this day, Moses says. Now that's in referring to the very end of the 40 years in which they wandered in the wilderness. See, God had taken them to the promised land, was going to usher them in, and they sent some spies in to check out the land, and so they could go in and, and take over, and God would give it to them, and He would go before them. And they came back and said, oh, I don't think we can do that. They're too big. They're giants. You know, yes, it is a wonderful land, but they're going to crush us like grasshoppers. And so they all then rejected the promised land that God was giving them. Forty years they've been in the wilderness now. And Moses says up here in Deuteronomy, up to these 40 years, up to this very day when we're about to enter in, God has hardened them so they would not do it. Now, Paul is applying that statement of Moses to his day, that God is once again hardening their hearts because they've rejected God's plan. So now we, we come here to, to uh, verses 9 and 10. Paul's quoting from Psalm that David has written, chapter 69, verse 22 and 23, when it says, Let their own table before them become a snare, and, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. And let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. I mean, here David, he's pronouncing curses upon his enemies in this psalm, okay? That's what this is about. But Paul is taking those curses to the enemies and he's applying it to the Jews of his day and his generation. So he writes here in Psalm 11, 9 and 10, and David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs for other. In other words, he's saying, May they never find true comfort and peace. May they stumble even over the truth. And may they, not fa and may they face hard labor and bear heavy burdens because of their rejecting God's plan. Now there's an important word there in verse 9. The word is retribution. And we can't, we can't just skip over that word. We've got to dig into it. Literally it means a repayment or a payback. 
for something they've done. All right? So God is hardening their heart as a paying them back for what they've done. It's a retribution. You've done this, this is what you get as a result of how you behave. So he's, he's punishing the unbelief of these Jews. So who has caused the hardening to come upon them? Remember, this hardening of their heart is not the same thing as their unbelief or their denying Jesus as Messiah. All right? But it is a punishment because they've rejected Jesus. The Jews are the ones who cause their own disbelief. Therefore, God now is bringing this hardening upon them. We see that in verse 8. So I ask myself, why would God do that to them? Why, why wouldn't He just plead with them somehow? Or, or show them somehow? I mean, He can do anything. Why wouldn't He just show them who He really is and who Jesus is? But Jesus has been with them for three years. And, and he's performed miracles, and he's prophesied for them, and he's, he has fulfilled prophecies. And they still say, no, nah, we don't want him. See, so they deserve this punishment. That's why he uses the word retribution. It's because of what they've done, God is now going to punish them with a hardened heart. We also need to remember that this retribution does not prevent them from repenting. He doesn't say that. And it's important for us to understand that God has a purpose for doing this that's going to ultimately lead to a great blessing, not only for the Jews, but for everybody else in the world, all the Gentiles. See, here's the point of what's coming up in the next paragraph in verses 11 through 16. So let's kind of dig into that. So we need to look at the result of the Jews and being hardened. So, Romans 11, 11 through 16. So I ask, Paul says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Well, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous... Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, he says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellowship, my fellow Jews, jealous. And thus... Save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So far in chapter 11, Verses 1 through 6, God has asked the question, or Paul has asked the question, did God reject His people Israel? And his answer was, no. God did not just throw them overboard, as it were. However, it appears just the opposite. 
that the Jews took Jesus and threw him overboard because they didn't want him and they've rejected him. But remember, Paul has told us also there in that first passage of, of, of Romans 11 that there is a remnant of Jews who put their faith in Jesus. Matter of fact, he even said many of the priests, they, they there in Jerusalem, they started believing in him. So not all the Jews have rejected him. There are still those who are putting their faith and believing in him. Now in verses 7 through 10, Paul is asking, then what about this, this non-remnant, these, these Jews who have not put their faith in Jesus? All right? These people who rejected God's gospel message of salvation. Well, he just told us. They were hardened. The ones who believed, they've got their salvation secured and they, they've been accepted by God. But those who rejected, they've been hardened. So Paul is now asking, what is the ultimate fate of my fellow Israelites whose hearts have been hardened? Are they lost forever? But the answer is this, not necessarily. God actually has a double purpose for his hardening in addition to the fact that they deserve it because of their rejection of him. The first purpose is this. You see, the hardening of the Jews, it is going to lead to the increase of Gentiles putting their faith in Jesus. And so because their hearts were hardened, look where we are today. I mean, we believed because they haven't been able to keep him to themselves. And so we now have done it. But the second purpose is this. The increase of the Gentiles, the more of us there are, it's going to create a jealousy in their hearts because God's loving us that they are going to want to be loved by him as well and they're going to put their faith in him and there will be more Jewish conversions to Christ. He's later in this chapter 11 is going to make this statement about this, about God and, and, and His plan and his, his purpose for all of this, beginning in verse 33 through 36. He's going to say, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable are His ways. In other words, I can't, I can't even begin to convey to you God's thoughts on this. It's beyond my comprehension. It's inscrutable are his ways. And then he goes on, he says, For who has known the mind of God, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory and honor forever. Amen. Now, it appears that most of Paul's contemporary Jews as individuals that they did stumble or they do fall away. And so he makes that statement in verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? He says, by no means, but rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. He's already talked to them about falling over, stumbling over the stone, which is Jesus. He's that, that, that cornerstone, that stumbling stone, all right? 
And in verse 9 he said, David even says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. And they did this by refusing to believe in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. Back in Romans chapter 9, Paul put it this way in verse 32 and 33. He said, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over this because Jesus says, you've got to believe in me. Rather than giving them a set of ten commandments and, and then 603 other commandments to follow that. Right? That they can work and do their deeds and all that. It's by faith in him. He says, so they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it's written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But then Paul asked this question there in verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, did their stumbling lead to their fall? And Paul answers this in two different ways. First off, he says, yes. Now, Later here in, in, in chapter 11, Paul is going to refer to another context of the Jews and in, in, in all of this. And so in verse 22, he's going to say, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Provided, provided, condition, you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, Paul speaks of those who have fallen to the point of suffering the severity of the holy wrath of God's nature. I don't want to ever find out what the holy wrath of God's nature is like. But here in verse 11 itself, the answer seems to be more complicated Did they fall, Paul asks. And then he gives this emphatic answer, no. And again, he uses that term that he's been using often here in Romans, meganoito, which, (laughs) you've got to be kidding me. That didn't happen. Heaven forbid. No, absolutely not. By no means did he do that. So he's really emphatic about this. So what's he saying here? How can this statement be reconciled with verse 22? In verse 11, it seems that Paul is expecting his question to be understood maybe in a more limited way as it's supposed to have maybe some have suggested a qualifier with it. All right. So even in some of our Bible translations, they will add some words that aren't in the original text because they want us to have this qualification. Did they fall what? Here's an example. In, in the New International Version, the translation that they that they have put out, they will ask this question. They will translate this verse by stating, did they stumble so so as to fall, quote, beyond recovery? Other versions will add words to the text itself like, did they stumble so as to fall irretrievably, irrevocably, permanently, completely, to ruin now, maybe it makes us think that that's, that's really what happened. It gives us this idea that something's got, do they fall to what? To their end? To their demise? It does just make us think that there's got to be some point. But did they stumble in disbelief so that they would fall from grace 
and they would end up in hell. Ultimately, I think that's what we're asking. That's probably what Paul's asking as well. But he says, absolutely not. And you see, there's more to the story than just this. All right? Many of them did stumble and fall, but there's something else going on here, and it fits within the very purpose of God and what He has designed. All right? The stumbling, Paul uses this idea. He uses another word back in verse 12, trespass. Their trespass is their stumbling. Or in, in verse, tw- verse 11 as well. Or he says in verse 12, it's also called their failure. All right? And, and then their rejection in verse 15. Yet, because the Jews have done this and they have fallen, it has led to the salvation, verse 11, the riches, verse 12, and the reconciliation, verse 15, of the Gentiles. God enabled them to fall so that we would believe. And He would offer us salvation. Now, the stumbling and the falling, this is their fault. All right? God did not do that to them. By their own free will choice, they rejected Jesus and screamed, Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. God didn't make them do that. They chose that. But not all of them chose that. So, when Jesus, when the Jews' indifference towards the gospel resulted in a concentrated evangelistic effort, then to the Gentiles. That's why Paul was set apart by Jesus to be an apostle to who? The Gentiles. Which is kind of odd because even he would classify himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's probably the most, you know, dug in within their nationality. And he identifies himself that. And yet, as deep a faith he has as being a Jew, God's sending him to the Gentile world. You would think that he'd be the one that would get to preach to the, to the Jewish people. I mean, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews after all. But no, he's set apart as a, an, an apostle to the Gentiles. But he makes this statement in verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then in verse 12 he says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion mean? Paul realized that this makes his mission as an apostle to the Gentiles part of an even grander and larger scheme and plan and purpose of God. So he says in verse 13, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So the conversion of the Gentiles ultimately is going to lead to the conversion and the salvation of some of the Jews who have stumbled and fallen. Romans eleven fourteen through 16, he says, In order somehow, somehow, he doesn't know how, I don't know how, this is beyond our comprehension, but somehow God is going to take their hardened hearts and their stumbling and their falling, and he's going to make my fellow Jews jealous 
thus save them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from death? You see, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Somehow, for the Jew, seeing all of us come to faith in their Messiah is going to create within them this, this jealousy in their hearts that they will want to surrender and serve Him as well. Romans ten nineteen, Paul says, But I ask, did Israel not understand? Then he responds by saying, Well, first Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Romans eleven eleven says, So I ask you, did they stumble or they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles to save, all right, and to make Israel jealous. Why? Verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So it means that eventually the Jews are going to come to believe in Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior. But we need to pay attention to what he says there. Some of them may be saved. He doesn't say the entire nation is going to come to salvation. They are still His chosen people. Remember we talked about their purpose was fulfilled at the birth of Jesus Christ. They were set apart as a nation, as a chosen people of God, elect by Him. Why? To bring Messiah into this world. While that ended their purpose, it does not end the relationship that He wants with them. And He wants this relationship through His Son Jesus just as much as He wants a relationship with you and me through His Son Jesus. All right? Now His statement indicates that He's speaking about personal salvation. Ours, theirs, individuals. But not as a national salvation of Israel. And fortunately it doesn't involve all of them, but some of them. Now, some of these individual Jews ultimately are going to accept Jesus as Christ, and therefore they're going to be accepted by God. That's what he tells us there in verse 15 of Romans 11. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from death? See, God intends to give them eternal life if they will believe in His Son. That's what it is. They need to put their faith in Jesus. So I want us to dig into another little statement that he uses here in, in, in this passage of Scripture in verse 12. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now he uses that word full inclusion. Uh, personally, that's not how I would translate that word. We can find other way, places in which this word is translated, and we'll get to that in just a minute. The Greek word that is used here is pleroma, which means fullness. Fullness, all right? And it doesn't necessarily carry the idea of including everybody, the full inclusion of everybody. Rather, it's indicating that those 
who put their faith in Jesus and are converted to a relationship with Him, that they will receive the fullness of His salvation. All right, now that same word is used in these other passages. In John chapter 1, verse 16, it uses this, For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. I would not translate from His full inclusion. Are we including Jesus in us? No, but from His fullness. Fullness of what? We've received our salvation. We've received grace upon grace. Paul will use this same word in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Now in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, the body, the, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And in chapter 3, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And in 4.13, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, this effect of the Gentiles and our conversion to Christianity, it's going to lead the Jews to even further convert to Christ themselves, and when they do that, then there will be more Gentiles that will convert to Christ because the Jews are now turning to Jesus. All right? so it's, it's just, it is like this domino effect. He's hardened their hearts so that we will believe. And then when they finally realize, I want that too, and they believe, and the fullness of the Spirit is upon them, then we go, oh my goodness, even the Jews believe in Him now. They've never believed in Him this way. And then more Gentiles will put their faith in Jesus. And it's just this process of Christ reaching out and bringing more people into a relationship with Him. So there is still hope for hardened Israel. All right? God still has a special place in His heart for them. That's what verse 16 is all about. He says there that if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are its branches. Paul is comparing first fruits to an entire batch of dough. All right. Now you have to understand, Paul speaks about first fruits as a lump of clay, just a little piece of it, just a little batch of dough, compared to the whole packet of it. All right. Romans 9.21, he, he makes this statement. He says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, Paul says, Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, this term first fruits is, is you'll go back to the book of Exodus. Uh, you can see it in Leviticus as well and, and in Deuteronomy. Uh, when the people had come out of, Israel, out of Egypt and God is establishing His relationship with them and His expectations of how He wants them to worship Him and the laws by which He wants them to live by, one of the things He mentions is a first fruit of all these things. So, so you've got your wheat 
And the very first thing that you do when you harvest it, the very first lamb that is born from your flock, the very first you know, calf that is born, the very first whatever it is, the very first that you have, that is surrendered to God and it is His. And they were supposed to take the first fruit of anything and offer that to God. All right, so there was this first fruit of flour and wheat that was to be offered up to God in His tabernacle and in His temple eventually that was given to Him as holy. And nobody was supposed to eat that except for the priest who were on duty, all right? Because it was holy, set apart. Paul here is using the same aspect of first fruits, but he's applying it to the first converts of his evangelistic calling. The first people to come into a relationship with Jesus in this context. So look at Romans 16, 5. He says, greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first fruits or the first convert to Christ in Asia. Right? Then in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, he says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus was the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So here Paul is using this terminology of first fruits for the early church of Jews. And you can read all about them in the book of Acts chapters 2 through 9. We'll see how they all of a sudden they began to put their faith in Jesus. And it was the Jews first and then the Gentiles. He's simply saying that if some Jews have already been saved, then all the other Jews have an opportunity and can be saved as well. Though, verse 14 says, they're not all going to be there, but some. That's the same thing with us Gentiles. Not every Gentile is going to put their faith in Jesus. Some. Not many people are going to choose to walk the narrow path. Many of them like walking the broad path. But we've got to walk the narrow way and enter into through the narrow door, narrow gate. So, Paul is using this aspect of the first fruits when he's speaking about the first converts to Christianity of Jews as the remnant of his day. Now, he, he, he's simply saying that, that though they all haven't come to Christ, there are some that will. And finally, he concludes this passage of Scripture, which is going to wrap things up for us today. He's saying that the root in its and the tree, the branches, he's doing some comparison here. The root is the entire Israelite nation as it exists under the Old Covenant. The branches, however, are the individual Jews that are springing from that root and are now living in a new covenant age. The branches are still very special to God not as part of the physical nation any longer, but as individuals whom God wants to have relationship with. All right? And He wants to have them as this remnant of faithfulness. 
Now understand this. All the Jews can be saved. And God wants all of them to put their faith in Him. Now the rest of the chapter that we're going to get into over the next few weeks is going to help us understand how they can be saved. Even though their hearts have been hearted. And we'll begin digging into that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the faithfulness of some of the Israelite people that you, you poured your heart into. And some of them are, are Paul himself. And by his faithfulness to you, he has been able to take to us a wonderful gospel message of great news about Jesus. But Father, there are a lot of the people that you had set apart and that wonderful nation of Israel that they've turned their backs on Jesus. Father, may, may there be something in us that will make them jealous that they will want to surrender to Him too. Father, we ask that You use us somehow to impact their lives. And Father, not just them, but anybody that we come around, that the world may see in us Your grace, Your mercy, and they'll want what we have. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.